Welcome to the Safe Enough Podcast. This podcast is an exploration of what it means to feel safe enough in order to live the kind of life or make the kind of changes that transform our lives into those with all the love, connection, belonging, and purpose that we seek and strive for. My name is McPherson Morabeck, the founder of It Begins to Move Studio. I'm a safety and self-worth recovery partner, and I'm so happy that you're here. This is the second of four episodes on the basics of feeling safe enough to heal and make changes towards a life that is full of love, connection, belonging, and purpose. In the previous episode, I defined safety, and in this episode, I'll talk about why I think it's time to go beyond trauma-informed approaches. And I know that's controversial, so I hope you'll stick with me. So to be trauma-informed means that Um, You understand that previous experiences influence how folks feel and behave in the present. And this is important because a trauma-informed approach explains that tough behavior always comes from somewhere. It's the result of something. Folks aren't just nasty or highly fearful out of the blue or due to some random personality defect. It's not an issue of motivation and personal choice. And on the subject of personality, our understanding about personalities, it's evolving. And we're starting to understand that it's not actually as set and inborn as we once thought that it was. Trauma and addiction specialist Dr. Gabor Mate boldly says in When the Body Says No, The Cost of Hidden Stress, his incredible book, Linking Stress and Disease, he says, quote, much of what we call personality is not a fixed set of traits only coping mechanisms a person acquired in childhood, end quote. And personality as a set of coping mechanisms acquired in childhood makes a whole lot of sense from the perspectives of neuroscience and attachment. So attachment theory says that how you relate to others, um, so how you expect other folks to behave, and also how you yourself behave is in large part due to how your primary caregivers behaved with you when you were very young. And I mean very, very young, between the ages of newborn and two. Although some folks say that you're still foundationally influenced up to five years of age. Regardless, really young. So from an attachment theory perspective, personality is a set of behaviors and expectations that you developed before you even really had the reasoning skills when you were so, so young to help you interact with caregivers who were just right in their amount of attention and responsiveness or to cope with caregivers who ignored you, who were frightened much of the time and therefore couldn't give you care and perhaps made you feel scared, feel scared too, or her, who were abusive and mean or, or worse, who were a mixture of all those things. And I say worse because the worst part about having a mixture of all those things is not knowing what care you were going to get when you needed it. Those kinds of caregivers, um, created the most instability in the children that they cared for. And therefore, being in that kind of care, that kind of sort of unpredictable care, requires the most complex coping strategies and leads to the most complex personalities in adults who learned that relating with others since 
primary caregivers become templates for all folks, for all relationships, um, that relating with others is unpredictable and unreliable. It's terribly scary to have a basic need as a, a mammalian child. Um, and by mammalian child, I mean that you're not able to provide um, the, the care that you need for yourself, like eating. Um, it's really scary to have a basic need as a mammalian child and then not know if your need will be met or not, right? So in this instance of eating, like I'm hungry, but will I be fed or not? I'm not sure. And then that's hard enough. And then worse, on top of not knowing if your basic need will be met, to not know if you will also have to deal with somebody being really mean and hurtful to you while you're hungry or ignore you and refuse to comfort you while you're hungry or being really frightened and leaving you feeling really frightened without being able to understand why on top of already being incredibly hungry and not being able to provide food for yourself. That's terribly scary. So let's say that as a mammalian inf infant, you have this basic need of food, right? You're hungry. And when you're hungry as an infant, you can't feed yourself. You rely on others feeding you at either regular intervals or when you notify those that are caring for you by crying. That's how a baby communicates, they cry. So let's say that you're hungry, you cry, but your crying isn't acknowledged by your caregivers and you're not fed. So not only does your body, your, your hunger feedback loops and, and your nervous system um, have to deal with being hungry, uh, and infants need like a very steady supply of nutrition because their brain and their body are developing at exponential rates. But at the same time, your body also has to deal with being hungry and its need for food being ignored. So being hungry and being ignored. Okay, and here, before I move on, I just want to point out that there's a difference between poverty or not having food, food insecurity, and neglect. So in a, in a severe poverty situation, there might, there might um, not be any food, but there can still be comforting connection and acknowledgement of a baby's hunger, even in the presence of no food. And that's a, that's a very different scenario. We're particularly talking about um, what happens when a caregiver um, like overtly ignores um, the need, uh, sorry, overtly ignores a need that a child or a baby is expressing, a, a basic need, right? So there can be really great connection and um, no need to, to cope with being ignored um, on top of being hungry if you're in a, a food insecure situation, although there is enormous correlation between um, poverty or food insecurity and attachment trauma, right? Those often go hand in hand, but they don't have to. So attachment theory says that these instances of not getting your basic needs met um, and engagement, comfort, and physical and emotional safety and love, those are all basic needs too. So I'm using this particular example of food and being hungry, but we could make the same case for um, needing comfort, needing physical safety, needing emotional safety, engagement, needing love, and not getting those two. Those are, those are basic needs too, but I'll use this example of, of food. 
Um, so attachment theory says that um, if you didn't get your basic needs met by primary caregivers when you were young, you likely develop coping strategies and mechanisms for bearing what to an infant actually feels like unbearable ways of being treated. I mean, it's nearly unbearable for any adult to be hungry, cold, homeless, uncomfortable, to be ignored, denied, abused, ostracized, or physically hurt by another person. And it's a million times worse for a small human who doesn't yet have any additional perspective on the world, doesn't yet have any agency to get their needs met. Um, another way to say this is that an infant or a young child, uh, when you're young like that, you don't know any better. You don't know that you could have anything better or differently. You kind of just have to take it. And because you just have to take it, you figure out a way to tolerate the intolerable, to bear the unbearable. And this coping skill set gets so ingrained and automatic because you're so young. So from an attachment perspective, an attachment perspective only, which is essentially a behavioral perspective, these coping skill sets become nearly solidified because they are set at the beginning of life. They become the foundation upon which everyone else, um, everything else about the world and your understanding of folks in the world gets built upon. And for a behaviorist, this is the process by which personality develops. And that's why it feels like personality is so set and unchangeable because it was set so young and it's so ingrained and it's the foundation upon which everything else has been built, right? So it's like, it's real deep in there. It feels like it's totally unchangeable. Um, have you ever said or thought or heard somebody say, well, that's just who they are. Mm, that's what we think about personality. That's just who somebody is. That's totally, people can't change. People don't change who they are at their core. Um, and attachment theory is, it's, it's a behavioral theory, but it's a really good behavioral theory. And it actually has been backed up by decades of high quality behavioral research. It's still incredibly influential and relevant today. And modern neuroscience has more recently demonstrated why attachment theorists consistently see such a strong correlation between what happened to folks when they were very young or what happens to folks during like atrocious relationships that occur even after somebody is five years old. Um, why there's a, such a strong correlation between something that happened before and why people are still affected later in life or as adults. Why what happened to you before impacts how you feel and how you behave now. Modern neuroscience has identified that the brain and nervous system actually change. They actually change their structure and that they, the way that they go through a whole cascade of biological processes as a result of trauma. Okay, so I have five things to say about this nervous system change process as a result of trauma. Okay, so one, let me call you back to the definition of trauma that I used in the previous episode, episode eight, what is safety? It's Bessel van der Kolk's definition, which is that trauma is when your experience is not allowed to be seen, heard, or valued. 
It's an experience of invalidation, of being ignored, violated, or hurt. It's essentially an experience of becoming unsafe. Okay, so stay, stay with me. The second thing I'd like to highlight is that the first step of healing from trauma, according to Judith Herman, is re-establishing safety. Stay with me. The third thing is that the definition of safety that I used also in the, the previous episode is Gabor Mate's, which says that safety is not the absence of threat, but the presence of connection, and that Brene Brown defines connection as being seen, heard, or valued. So not all experiences of trauma or unsafety carry forward and have a lasting negative impact on your experience of life and relationships. Or from a neuroscience perspective, we could say, not every experience of traumatic stress creates long-standing structural changes in the brain and nervous system. And this brings me to my fourth point, which is that the difference between whether it does or it doesn't create long-standing trauma responses then becomes a question of whether someone receives real connection afterwards. A reestablishment or establishment of safety by way of real connection. This is universal and important to every human connection, but it is particularly important for a young person whose brain and nervous system structures are developing for the first time. Young folks are particularly susceptible to traumatic stress, to attachment wounds. They're particularly susceptible to the effects of invalidation and neglect, um, abuse and violation because without overt and comprehensive unwinding and healing those experiences. Those experiences shape their brain and nervous systems. They influence those critical structures and processes during the molding stages. So I think of it like a plastic toy that gets like mispoured during the casting process and it sets up and hardens kind of like kinked or malformed in comparison with what the rest of the toys look like on the production line. And then in this example, say the toy like um, has some kind of musical feature. Well, if it has a, a, mis, a mishap during the molding process and the structure of the toy gets a, a, like a bit malformed, perhaps the toy isn't able to play the music like its regularly shaped and molded counterparts can. Okay, so here's my fifth and what I think is the most important point of this episode. Your brain and your nervous system are not, are not hard molded to the point that they are unchangeable. Even though there can be experiences that malform or misshape your brain, if your brain changes as a result of trauma, it can be altered again. It is malleable or plastic sort of, that's the, the buzzword in neuroscience these days. There's brain plasticity, right? So your brain structures may have developed in a malformed way because of early trauma or may have become misshapen due to an experience of long-term relational and complex traumatic stress at any time in life, but everything can still change. 
And that is blue sky good news because it means that things really can change. It means that your suffering is not a death sentence. But real change, change at that kind of level, requires going beyond just being trauma-informed and it requires working directly with your nervous system. Trauma-informed is a super necessary um, understanding, right? It's the first step. Being trauma-informed means that you understand that how folks feel and behave right now in this moment is a result of what happened to them in the past. Great! That's the starting point. But that is only the starting point. Changing the way that things are now, if you'd like them to be different, requires working at the level of your brain and your nervous system. Because that's where the sort of malformation, misshapenness occur. But true change can only happen when you really understand how the brain and the nervous system work because changing automatic, also adaptive, brilliant, self-protective coping strategies can't just be fixed with a breathworth, a breathwork sequence. And I say that as a, as a yoga teacher, I, I've seen the power of breathwork, right? But automatic, self-protective coping strategies at the level of your brain and your nervous system can't just be fixed with a breathwork sequence or telling somebody to just let it go. Real and effective change at this level requires an understanding of not just how to establish, how to establish, but also of how to maintain a felt sense of safety and an authentic and legitimate connection during a process that will inherently resist change when it's done without skill. The future is nervous system informed, friends. It's nervous system informed. We have to go beyond trauma informed to create real change. And the next episode we'll talk all about how to make that happen. If you find this interesting, please leave a review and subscribe so that you know exactly when the next episode drops. And if there are topics that you'd like me to cover, please make those suggestions in reviews and, and in the comments section. Also, feel free to check out current and future offerings at my website, itbeginstomove.com. This is McPherson with the Safe Enough Podcast and It Begins to Move Studio. I'm so glad that we're here together. I'll see you in the next episode and take care, kind soul.